Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. In a remote village in the Al Shrif tribal area of northern Morocco, there dwells a collective of Sufi musicians who play a form of trance music which is used for healing. Each year in the village, a boy is sewn into goat skins to dance as Bujalud, who appears to us Westerners as the god Pan. The flute-playing goat god is the protector of shepherd boys, who brings fertility in springtime. The musicians play music to drive Bujalud back to his cave. With the beast appeased by the music, they can expect a good harvest, and women touched by its flailing palm fronds will bear healthy children. Well, we're going to hear all about this wonderful story and the musicians in this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm just back, or we're just back, from the wonderful Hey On Why Festival in the hills of Mid Wales, where we had three terrific events. Whatever happened to the counterculture, the radical power song and bone music, I hope we'll be releasing recordings from all three in coming weeks. Join us at bureauoflostculture.com for news, newsletters and news stories and old tales from the underground and beyond. We appreciate your support, messages, reviews and suggestions. Keep it coming. Now, back to that remote village in northern Morocco. Timothy Leary, with his usual hyperbole, called them the 4,000-year-old rock and roll band. But it is true that the music that the master musicians of Jajuka play is thousands of years old. In the 15th century, when the Sufi saint Sidi Ahmed Sheikh arrived in the village, he wrote music for the master's ancestors, which could heal disturbed minds. Today's masters are said to be blessed with the baraka, or spirit of their saint, and they use touch and prayer and music to heal. They came to the notice of a wider audience in the 1950s through chance encounters with beat artist Brian Geisin and beat writer William Burroughs. Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones later recorded an album with him shortly before he died. And jazz musician Ornette Coleman recorded another. And since then, the master musicians have toured the world to great acclaim and worked with all sorts of other musicians. But they still live in Jajuka where they host their own extraordinary micro-festival through the offices of my guest today. Irish-born singer, record producer, curator, filmmaker and historian Frank Rin. He has, since 1992, worked extensively with the master musicians of Duca, recorded three albums and he co-organises that annual festival I mentioned. Frank also teaches at the Université Pantheon SS and he's got a long association with the Beats, especially William Burroughs, and that's how I met you. Is it not, Frank? Welcome. Hello, Stephen. Lovely to see you again. It's been several years. I think London, we did the Burroughs for 2019 or something. Eh? It was William Burroughs in London, or William Burroughs' London. Yeah, we did that exhibition at uh, Westminster Library, and then you and Miles talked about Burroughs in London, right? Uh, you gave me a present, a beautiful print of uh, that Miles had taken of William Burroughs in London, and I have it on my wall. So I will always re- treasure the, the moment and remember you fondly, Stephen. I've got to say, you're still looking rather young. Don't, what, you've, got, you've got some sort of secret secret juice that you get in the Moroccan mountains. Uh, maybe it's the dancing. 
I don't know. Ah, okay. so, uh, we've just spent a week in Morocco with the musicians. Uh, we had a festival there in the village. Well, I gave a brief intro to the mus- musicians, but for, for somebody who's never heard of them and thinks, just tell us, give, a, give us the sort of background, beautiful, strange story. Who are they? I suppose the reason a lot of people in the West and people interested in the counterculture, etc., uh, know about these musicians was because in the 1950s, Brian Geisen, the uh, painter who came up with the cut of metal writing for Burroughs, was living in Morocco. Burroughs was living in Morocco. Paul Bowles who, um, was living in Morocco. Geisen encountered this Moroccan young painter called Mohamed Hamri in 1951 or so. Hamri was from this village in the mountains. Uh, he, his mother was uh, from this family called Atar, who were uh, tri- who were tribal musicians in the mountains. And accidentally, Geisen had been, gone to a musical festival, a Sufi trance festival with Bowles, and he heard this group and he just thought, that's my music. And then he met with Hamri in Tangier, and Hamri brought him to his village, and he heard the same music. Geisen said he wanted to hear Zizuka every day of his life. So he and Hamri set up a restaurant, The Thousand and One Nights in Tangier, and they uh, brought 15, there was about 60, 70 musicians in the village at this time, and they'd bring 15 at a time for two weeks, and then send them back and then bring another 15. So Geisen, from about 52 until uh, 58, uh, bringing Zizuka to the international zone, the interzone. But the story of this interaction with the Beats, the band that William Burroughs went to see, or Timothy Leary gave them the moniker, the 4,000-year-old rock and roll band. Which is slightly ludicrous, but sort of... But I, I, I wanted to just dive in there a second, Frank, because can you give us a description of the village? or the? And obviously you're very familiar with it now, but have you got an, an idea about what it was like at the time? So in the 50s... How many people are there? What's it like? When I first went uh, in the early 90s, it was probably pretty much the same as in the 50s. There was no electricity. Uh, there's still no piped water. And so it was like a medieval village where at the nighttime, the stars are all above you. Uh, there's The houses are made of mud and stone and wattle. Um, the roofs now are galvanized. Back then, there'd been a lot more thatched roofs. And the people there would have been uh, a mixture of master musicians, farmers, uh, and their families and children. Uh, probably no more than a hundred houses sitting on a little hill uh, above a valley and with the high mountains behind it, the road was impassable. Even when I went there, we'd we'd pull up at the bottom of the hill in a taxi and Hamry would, the, the painter would whistle to a shepherd boy who'd whistle to another one. And then half an hour later, one of the musicians would appear in front of us with a donkey and two big bags on it to take our luggage. Burroughs and Geisen, um, would have experienced that. Geisen went an awful lot in the 50s. Paul Bowles, who I talked to about Shishuka, said he only went once and that he never went again. He wasn't a fan of the music. And he said the, the fleas were the biggest fleas he'd ever seen in his life. I never encountered that problem either. Probably they just they just had the right target. I think Paul Bowles probably deserved a few flea bites. Uh, a little revenge of the fleas was probably uh, well in order. Why were they, I think we know, but why were they in Tangier? Well, Bowles uh, first went to Tangier in the 30s, but I presume the reason he was in Tangier, uh, other than the fact that he could be the lord of the manor on not so much money, was uh, to have sex with young boys. A lot of the beat generation were tarred with certain accusations about Morocco, but uh, I think Bowles tops them all. Um, I have described him recently to someone as the Jimmy Savile of Morocco. Um, I mean, it's very serious, and I mean, it's a very touchy subject and a painful subject for a lot of people, but I, I have encountered people 
like a psychiatrist in um, Tangier uh, with the journalist and writer Paul Trinka and the, the psychiatrist overheard us speaking in Dean's Bar and he said, you're talking about Paul Bowles. I have spent my career in the psychiatric hospital of Tangier treating hundreds of his victims. And, you know, it was like, whoa. So the truths and the mythologies are very, very at variance, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I don't know if you can tar everyone with the same brush as bowls, but to describe the interzone at that time, or the Tangier International Zone, it was a free port and it was part of a settlement post-Second World War. All the different Cold War actors were there. Um, the embassies of Italy, Spain, the USSR, the USA, all, all of these were operating there. So it was a den of spies. Uh, there were about 60,000 um, Westerners living in the Tangier area mm. when it was the interzone. It was obviously a place of smuggling, a place where there was drugs, uh, lots of alcohol, um, lots of prostitution. And um, in, so it was one of these very rare places in the world where it was almost a lawless uh mad zone and it had, you know Tangier had previously been a place where let's say you know minor members of the royal family uh, could be sent if they were if their peccadilloes were going to be embarrassing so there was this kind of tradition of people whose behavior was not acceptable in right. their own bourgeois or upper class society and Tangier they could live like kings and lords on not so much money have servants Uh, beautiful properties and uh, live this sort of very, uh, I suppose, a delusionary life. A sort of decadent, uh, indulgent life, but at the same time, a bohemian angle to it. And then you get this extraordinary thing where this collision with this tradition that we're going to hear more about, actually, which is basically a spiritual tradition, right? Very true. The Morocco at this time also attracted some of the richest people in the world. You had Peggy Guggenheim, uh, she had a place in Venice, a place in the, in the States, but a place in Tangier. You had uh, Barbara Hutton, the heiress to the Woolworths fortune. And down in Marrakesh um, in the 50s and 60s, you had a brother and sister who were the heirs to the Krups fortune. Before independence in Morocco, uh, the sort of these people could live this decadent life mm. uh, without really any heed to the local people and the Moroccan population. And their money went a very long way. Right. Um, but in terms of the spiritual music, all these people were not bad. For example, Barbara Hutton famously had amazing Ganawa musicians and Asawa musicians. And these are spiritual Sufi brotherhoods and sisterhoods, always coming to her home. And as I said, Hamri and Geisen bringing Jujuka to the Thousand One Nights. Jujuka, one of several traditions broadly in the kind of Sufi uh, lineage then. It's, it wasn't just Jujuka, there were other musicians in that part or in different parts of Morocco? The the Sufi tradition with music in Morocco is vast and there's multiple different uh, sects and brotherhoods. Ganao are probably the most famous one these days in the West and their uh, origin mythology is that they're ex-slaves from Egypt and the Sudan. Um, In about 500 years ago, one of the sultans didn't trust his troops so he recruited a whole army of Sudanese troops and uh, they, in their songs, they sing about Sudan, and they, they have a, a special language that is more sub-Saharan African. And their ritual, uh, Leila, is about invoking spirits and people going into trance. Extremely moving ceremony can go on for 12 hours. Other groups like the Hamdashi and the Esawa, likewise, uh, use music and chant as a way of conveying their spirituality. Right, so we're going to hear a bit now, right? 
musicians do something absolutely insane here. They're walking around and the drums are going to go through your head and through your heart. sort of focus of the Sufi tradition in Jijuka is the sanctuary of their saint Sidi Ahmed Sheikh, Sheikh located in Jijuka. In a history of the Sufi saints of Morocco published in 1571. In the in the stories, Hamri's book tells Jijuka talked about Sidi Ahmed Sheikh coming and finding these musicians and realizing that they played something special. But he was educated and he thought he could use their music as a, like a surgical instrument to heal people with um, mental problems with so the sufi prophet arrives in the village he finds musicians already there and sees them as this potential agency if you like to carry out healing and in particular uh healing of mental affliction i mean it's a extraordinary thing isn't it it, it, it is absolutely extraordinary. And so there's one strand of the music of Jujuka that's completely different to the other one that I'll discuss, which is probably much more ancient. And this is a very different beats, very different melodies. And it's about getting into the, the mind, uh, changing the sort of biorhythms, I suppose, of the body. And traditionally, this was performed in the sanctuary. And if people had someone, uh, and the sanctuary is, uh, is still there. I was only there last weekend. There's a, an ancient big tree in the courtyard with a chain around it. And this is where people uh, were ceremonially chained if they were mentally ill. And the few times I've seen uh, people bringing their relatives, uh, one time I remember there was a young woman, maybe 20. She wasn't chained as if like it was prison. It was a very ceremonial. The chain was around her waist. She was sitting very calmly on the ground. Her family were in the, in the sanctuary where the saint's uh, tomb is praying. And some musicians were coming and playing and touching her with the instruments because the Jujuka believed that by playing this music, it puts baraka or blessing into the place, into the instruments, into themselves. And then when they play, they give this baraka back to people. Um, so they also see the whole area of Jujuka as the country of Sidi Ahmed Sheikh. So it's just they believe that even by coming there, you're getting baraka. So there's layers of belief in, in and around this music. And do you think that Geisen and, uh, you know, Burroughs to an extent as well, they were, as far as we know anyway, the kind of first, you know, well-known Westerners, put it that way, to come across it. And Geisen obviously made a connection with it himself. What, what was it that moved him? Or was he, in fact, in some way healed by it himself? That's a very good point. Geisen had a, a lot of ups and downs in his life. And I, I first met Shizuka and came across Shizuka when... I was in my 20s and I was organizing a William Burroughs and Brian Geisen art show in Dublin. I had 
bumped into Terry Wilson, who had worked with Geisen on the book Here to Go. And we got chatting and it turned out he knew Burroughs and Geisen. I was very interested in the beat generation. Terry had a friend in Dublin, Gordon Campbell, who wanted to put on an art show. And Terry said, well, you better write to Hamry. Uh, so I wrote to Hamry and said, we're doing this. We'd like to invite you and bring your paintings. And Hamry rang me and said, you cannot do anything for Brian Geisen, for Brahim, without having Jashuka musicians. So I said to Gordon, Gordon, maybe we want to bring Jashuka as well. So a little budget was gotten for that. And we brought four musicians. But these four men captivated everyone in this show. Um, and for seven days, I had been playing uh, concerts, playing in the street. And I had a big warehouse, that was where the, which was the HQ for the show, which we were having parties every night with Ira Cohn, the beat poet from New York, reading uh, Hamry's exhibition of his paintings. We had Peter Lamborn Wilson, a.k.a. Hakeem Bay, giving talks and discourses. Um, and every night, Shishuka would finish this. And we were in kind of an inner city part of Dublin. One of the very last nights of the festival, there was a snack and a, a, one of the windows fragmented. And I looked up and I realized someone had fired a gunshot through the bloody window. <laughs> they, wow. were they were obviously sick of um, the loudest folk band in the world playing night after night after night. And it's a part of Dublin where if you're reading the papers today about, um, you know, Irish criminality and drug gangs, that would have been the part of Dublin where the Keenan crime cartel were uh, based uh, at that time. Well, I think that's a perfect moment to actually have some music. The, the Sufi music we discussed, the Sidiat Sheikh, that's one suite. The other music which Burroughs was completely captivated by is the Bujalud music, Bujaludia. Now, Bujalud is a person in the village who uh, dances dressed in four goat skins with a hat and branches. 
And that music has been described to me by major rock star as Billy Corbett. But he said, that is the loudest thing I've ever heard that wasn't amplified. When they play Bougie Deer with masked writers, maybe six to eight writers, which are a double reed instrument, and four or six drums, the volume is in, intense. I, I liken it to when I was 14, seeing the, Ramon, the Ramones and putting my head in the bass bin. Loud and furious and exciting. The other things that people like Geisen and Burroughs were fascinated by. On one side, there's circular breathing. So you've got a bunch of musicians on the left of the main writers who are doing drone in different frequencies, and that's changing. And then you've got a lead section who are playing melody. And if you walk in front of them, you're hearing different sounds at every point. But if you stand back, you're getting just this blast of sound. And then the rhythms, you've got two different types of drums. One is a big farad, which is like grounding the music with boom, boom. And then you've got a small drum, which is beating out techno beats because they're acoustically playing those fast, you know, syncopated rhythms. And the overall is it's astounding, powerful, rhythmic beauty that basically stops you thinking. You cannot, huh. you, you don't, can't, you know, you, you start, when you get into this, you start to lose yourself. You can't think. So you experienced that for the first time yourself. And that's what drew you in, is it? This kind of trance-like thing where it shifts your consciousness into some other sort of place. I'm assuming it takes a bit of time to actually relax into that. We had a very small band, so yes, they, they grabbed me. So you've been, you started working with them. You actually record albums and put out albums of their music. They start touring, so they start leaving the village, coming to play festivals in uh, this part of the world and also in America. I got them out in 92, but the next time I took them out of the country was 2007. And then more recently, we've been doing a lot more work. But we, in a sense, the way I work with Shizuka isn't like I am a manager producer, but I, it's, it's a very difficult thing to put the proposition of trying to take these people on six weeks tours. Uh, they, they have their own lifestyle. Uh, they're not some pop band. Uh, we're preserving something. Let's get back to the Brian Jones story and this album that uh, Brian makes with them. So... Just tell us how he came across them and a little bit about his story and his interaction with them, which, of course, ends with this album, which rather sadly comes out after he's dead. Uh, But perhaps you could walk us through that tale. Anyone who likes the Stones has to love Brian Jones. Jones is a beautiful instrumentalist. He could play anything. He obviously had incredible talent, but he first started going to Morocco in 65 and he... Uh, met with Geisen. Geisen would have been, Geisen knew people like Christopher Gibbs, uh, who was friendly with the Stones uh, in London. Christopher was, he died recently as well, lovely man. Christopher was a wealthy art collector, etc. Brian came to Tangier, he was introduced to the people there, and that would have been uh, people like Burroughs. The scene, the counterculture scene there that he could easily step into. And in that scene, he was hanging with Brian Geisen, and he also met Hamry. Jones came, came back at least three or four times to Morocco. In 65, he was trying to record Ganawa music in Marrakesh with uh, Glyn Johns, the producer. Um, I don't know what has ever happened with those tapes, but there is photos of Brian with a tape recorder. Uh, they met Hamry and Geisen in uh, Tangier and went up to the village for one night. And so Jones recorded, this was recorded in very quickly, they did the ritual of Bougelud. Uh, they There was a goat sacrificed for Brian, a white goat. And this is a famous story that Brian said, that's me. 
Here is a sidebar. It's a snapshot of Brian Jones's life in 1968 by David Holzer. Brian's life had been spiraling downwards for months before he journeyed to Jajuka. The music he intended to record was believed to have the power to heal. If anybody needed healing, it was Brian. He had driven his girlfriend Anita Pallenberg into the arms of Keith Richards. His friend Tara Brown, 21-year-old heir to the Guinness fortune, had died in a car crash on December 18, 1966, devastating Brian. Corrupt London cop Detective Sergeant Norman Clement Pilcher, Lennon's Semolina Pilchard, and sleazy tabloid newspaper The News of the World had Brian in its sights. With his friend Prince Stash Klawowski, the ruler, he was busted after the police found grass and an amount of cocaine in Brian's apartment. That, as a cop told Stash, was about one thousandth of a grain. Even the high point of June 1967, sacheting around the Monterey Pop Festival at his hippie glad rags and introducing Jimi Hendrix to hip America, took Brian another step towards disaster when he was introduced to the powerful sedative, Qualudes. Stash told me they had an awful effect on Brian, especially mixed with alcohol. It was painful to watch in that he lost coordination and had trouble walking across a room without banging into anything in his way that he could possibly bang into. Brian hooked up with Tara Brown's former girlfriend, Suki Potier, a quiet, pretty blonde model. Suki had been in the car with Tara and had held him, dying for 45 minutes until an ambulance came. In the months leading up to the court hearing, resulting from the bust, Brian was admitted to rehab facility, the Priory. Psychological reports focused on his anxiety and the manic and depressive symptoms he displayed. He pleaded guilty at the hearing, immediately making it harder for the Stones to work in the USA. Brian was sentenced to a year in prison, which shocked him to the core, but released on bail, and after psychiatric poetry made it clear he was in danger of a complete mental breakdown, he was fined £1,000 and given three years probation. On the night of 20th of May, he was busted again after the police found cannabis resin in his apartment. This time he decided to fight. The court case was hanging over him the entire time he was in Tangier. By the time Brian arrived in Tangier, a city he had visited at least three times before, with Suki in tow. Suki and Brian stayed at the Grand Hotel El Minza on Rue de la Liberté, midway between the Medina with its twisting, turning alleyways and whispered temptations, and the Boulevard Pasteur, which marked the boundary of Tangier's Nouvelle Ville. They were in the city with antique dealer and socialite Christopher Gibbs. Tangier is a colourful, pungent place and a city of music. During the day, Moroccan pop blasts out of open taxi windows. Street musicians from all over the country play on busy corners. At night, the sound of drums drifts on cool sea breezes. After Suki slashed her wrist with a broken mirror, Brian tried to persuade Gibbs to go to hospital with her. Gibbs refused. While Gibbs raised an eyebrow at Brian's often appalling behaviour, he acknowledged his extraordinary musicality, admiring Brian's ability to communicate, as he told Paul Trinker, with anyone, anywhere, even some street musician with an old drum or handmade pipe, which he'd always managed to get a beautiful sound out of, bonding with the owner across a cultural divide. At a time when Mick and Keith were turning mainly to US rural blues and country music for inspiration, 
Brian was going far, far deeper and further out. He gets back to Tangier and the first person, the first thing he did when he gets back to Tangier after a night in Jujuca is he goes into the Minza Hotel, boom, 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 on William Burroughs' door and presses play. Listen to this, William. When he got back to London, that's all he was doing. He was going around to all his mates playing this this Jujuca music. So he was obsessed with it. Through the summer of 68, he started working on producing the LP. And now there's been an awful lot of controversy about this LP. People, purists say it's that Brian Jones ruined this sacred music by phasing it. Um, but I've done a lot of thinking and research on this. And some years ago, I was in a friend's place with, who had a beautiful hi-fi and the penny drops, eureka moment. And I realized that this wasn't so much phasing as he was cutting up Shizuka. And at one point, he has two songs running together over each other. And underneath that, there's women speaking and singing. And so he was using the cut up because when you're standing in front of these musicians, and I was mentioning how loud and how powerful the sound is, but when you're standing in front of them in the village, in the mountain, in the air, open air, no amplification, that's what it sounds like. It's going So what Jones was doing was he was trying to recreate what he mm. heard, essentially trying to recreate the feeling he had listening to them in their village. And for me, he did a fantastic job. It is a very true poetic interpretation of the Jujuka sound. An evocation, perhaps. Absolutely. And then the idea that he's using cut up and I can hear Hamry's voice in there. It's incredible what's on that record. But to see, so for me, the Brian Jones album is fantastic. So for the rest of the summer, Brian got the Stones machine mobilized and then nothing happened. Brian died in July 69. And so the, I think it's the eighth release on Rolling Stones record in 71 is the Brian Jones album um, with a beautiful painting on the cover, double beautifully put together. That album did something for Shishuka that was at the right time in the world, that the 60s was over, but this is something going to Africa. People were going to India, Nepal. This is all. So all of a sudden, these people started coming to Shishuka. Obviously, as you say, if you're a Stones fan, why would you not love Brian Jones? He seems extraordinarily prescient and sort of ahead of his time, really, doesn't he? He's out there making field recordings of what has broadly became known as world music, you know, traditions of music from other cultures. And I mean, that's quite early to be doing that, isn't it? The French were doing these albums in the 60s and 50s, mm. recording in, you know, Algeria, Morocco, and there's brilliant music from Afghanistan all over the world. And um, there was another lady doing field recordings from the 50s who she's going around by herself recording with an ethnomusicologist. So that existed as an academic field. But when you put, I see world music usually as being some sort of connection between rock stars and ethnic music. Mm. So Jones maybe was the first, when people say it's the first world music album, well, it is really because it's the first album with traditional folk or religious music with that imprimatur of a Western rock star. Let's talk a little bit more about the music because in terms of like, you know, what we're used to, which is bands recording tracks, which they play repeatedly, they write a new set of tracks for a new album. How does it work? So first of all, are these pieces improvised or the traditional pieces which are played over and over again which are continually reinterpreted and they are traditional pieces in general there are some new pieces like but new like 55 years ago there's one song which Hamley wrote the lyrics for which is Brian Jones Jejuka Very Stoned 
but it's on a traditional melody. Oh, Brian Jones, Shashuka, very strong, you can play that. in gold skins and in the legend of Jajuka Bujlu gave this blues music to these people and it's a, a lovely story that, that there was a forbidden zone outside the village and every day this man of tar brought his goats into the forbidden zone and they got fatter than all the other goats in the village but he kept falling asleep and when he sleep he was asleep he dreamed these strange things sounds that he couldn't understand he didn't know what they were he'd never heard anything like it and one day he woke up and there was a monster above him, a big half-man, half-goat figure, Bujalu. And he was playing a flute. And this was the sound that he heard in his head. And so Atar promised, uh, asked him, would he teach him? And he said, you mustn't teach anyone else. And that night, the musicians, the Atars made flutes for all the village and they were all playing and Bujalu went crazy. So he attacked the village. And Atar, to get rid of him, promised that he, if he came back in a year, he'd give him a wife. So every year, 
Bougelou would come and dance and they would put a crazy woman, Aisha Kandisha, a witch, to dance and she would dance Bougelou silly. And Bougelou went back to his cave happy and the kids were fertile, the women were fertile, the land was fertile. So this is spring mm. rites about fertility and it's very much the ancient religions of the Mediterranean basin, the worship of Faunus of Pan. It's time for another track. What have you got? Mali Mal Hal Malamaz. Everyone is together. And this is flute music, which I recorded um, back in the 1990s. is music of the flute and the right that associated with Bougelou in the and same way. And it's also way. dance music, so that's you're, you're dancing yourself into a frenzy, which is this thing we talked about, like a kind of trance of an altered state, right? And for the Romans, it's the, the week of celebration of Pan was a sexual feast, you know, it was about... Maybe that's something about the Bougelou music that it just has such frenetic energy. So it was intended also as this healing music for the me- people with mental afflictions. That would be a different suite of music. We talked to the musicians about this, but they were saying, well, look, it's all the same. The Baraka is in Bougelou, the Baraka is in the Sidiat Mashiach music. It's all Sidiat Mashiach. They see it all as and the same. And is your observation or experience or in terms of just what you've heard, is that is it effective? I mean, has it actually helped to heal? There are many stories I've heard about uh, people being healed. One of the musicians on the tour that Ricky Steen did with the musicians in 1980, there was a girl who had who couldn't walk properly and they healed her but they were telling me about that uh, the leader of the masters at the moment Ahmed al he was saying this story as well he was on that tour but there was a Japanese uh, man at the festival this week and he's wearing a back brace and um, we went to the sanctuary and there's these ancient stones that are left on the tomb and they're used for healing and the leader of the musicians put him down on the ground like he got the rock and he put it and he went down his back and he went down his legs and he went down his arms and and he got up and he said i'm bloody well a lot better and i want to check with him because he's probably back in japan now is he still better but you know a lot of these things are in the belief you believe of course uh, of course and then the sense of goodness mm. that maybe you feel from the people giving you the the an awful lot of healing is about you mentioned women there. So in terms of the music, is it purely a male thing or do women play too? There are women on the Brian Jones album. Now, the women don't like to perform in front of a bunch of rowdy lads. So the women will perform their music apart. And if there's a wedding in the village, there'll be bougelude for the lads. And the women will go in the house and they have their own beautiful music, singing and they're clapping hands. Yeah. <laughs> 
So the women have a very powerful tradition of music there, uh, but it's m- far more elusive. They'll sing to me alone. <laughs> I said, can I record? No, 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 no. I know it'll happen when it happens. What about the kids? So in terms of like how this thing gets passed on from generation to generation, is it a kind of master apprenticeship thing? I mean, how, how is the tradition maintained? If a kid is interested in music, they will start playing. The, it might be these days on a plastic Fanta bottle or something. And then they come to the attention or that might be their father is in the house playing. Um, but once they want to do this, then they have to learn from a master. And they will start with dancing. And so dancing gets the rhythm into the body. And then if they want to be drummers, they will start on the small drum and move to the big drum. All the musicians would tend to be able to play the flute, which is a bamboo flute, and the drums. The writer players is another level. It involves circular breathing. It involves sometimes playing for four, five, six, seven, eight hours. This is exactly what right the players do. The circular breathing involves the body is a, is is like a sack of air, and it's going through the, the the instrument and creating this music, and it's oscillating and it's changing, and you're playing as part of a collective that's moving organically. In terms of the music, and in terms of like the cultural changes that have happened in the world, in Morocco, and also the cultural changes that have happened specifically to these people and the village because of the attention brought to it, do you, are you confident that the tradition will maintain and survive and flourish? More confident today than I was, let's say, five or six years ago. Like when electricity came, everyone had a television. These days, things settle down. I'm encouraged. I see uh, one of the master's sons, he's 18. He's becoming quite a good flute player. I know other musicians from the next village who come down sometimes. Who, and you, I get spotted ta- in terms of talent spotting. Some brilliant young musicians, when asked about this, will say, well, look, we're not worried because it's been here for so long and it'll always be here. I think the danger would be um, people talking about, you know, oh, let's set up a school or a university for music. That's exactly how you kill the music. Anytime you try and do an inorganic thing with an organic culture and spirit, you're going to mess it up. What's it been like taking them on tour? What's it like, in what's it like for them? So, you know, they come from this tradition, small village, Morocco, and then they're suddenly like in London or in Dublin or in the, you know, in the States or at Glastonbury. What's well, that like for them? They love it because they, they see the music going out backwards. We went to Japan in 2017, so the first Shizuka musicians ever in Asia. And it was fantastic. The first with no PA, no amplification, and the 500 people who were left at the festival there in the middle of the night. And that was probably one of the the highlights of my life in terms of music. They love playing and they kick it out. So listen, Frank, we're running to the end here, but um, listen, tell us what's coming. Two concerts coming up on the 20th and the 21st um, in uh, The Forge in Delancey Street in Camden. And then we are off to Glastonbury. And we are, for the second time, we are opening the Pyramid stage on Friday. And then later in the evening, we're playing the craziest venue in Glastonbury, the Rabbit Hall. Absolutely the most insane small venue in Glastonbury. Terrific, terrific. Thank you so much. I know that was a very rapid tour through 
the story of the Master Musicians and, of course, your story as well. I think it'd be great to have one final piece to play out on. What have you got? Light is a song that's heard all over Morocco, but each region and each village has its own one. And it's a song that's about liberation. And somehow it's linked in going back centuries with liberation from different enemies or different oppressors. Frank Rin, thank you very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Uh, thank you, Stephen, and keep up the good work. You know, we, we follow you. We're all uh, 100% supportive of your efforts. Frank, so much good stuff there, right? Links to the master musicians of Jijuka and various other things, including Frank, in the show notes. We didn't have time or space really to play longer sections of their music, and I'm aware that, you know, it's not really the stuff to listen to in fragments. I imagine you can relax into it or dance or trance into it. It's a different experience altogether, so do check it out further. I thought the, um, the Beats and the Brian Jones stories were interesting too, and I was fascinated by this thing about the interzone in Tangier, this kind of hot, Cold War, spy and cockroach-infested crossing place where anything went. But I was shocked to hear Frank's description of Paul Bowles. I mean, I've always thought of him as a fascinating character, this kind of pre-beat polymath. I mean, he was this American expat composer, you know, settled in Tangier in the 40s and lived there right till, till the end, I think, in 1999. But he's famous, probably, I guess, for that novel, The Sheltering Sky, which um, Bertolucci made into a, a 1990s film. I think it was with John Malkovich. Um, and I think that was loosely based on him and his wife Jane's life in Tangier. I mean, they were both gay, but I was completely unaware of the extent of Paul Bowles' predatory life, you know, exploiting these uh, illiterate, poor, rather vulnerable youths and then and bragging about um, how cheap sex with young boys was in Algeria. Frankly, that reference to Jimmy Savile for, for any um, non-English or non-British uh 
people who think it was Jimmy Savile. Well, Jimmy Savile was this national treasure, uh, public entertainer, kind of weird guy, actually, who, uh, as it turned out, after he died, it came out, was a absolutely terrible and serial predator, sexual predator. Um, it's difficult, isn't it, um, with the Beats? There's this awful side to them and to the hippies, too. And we've talked a bit about it, you know, particularly in relation to women, but there's so much more, you know. I mean, I personally think you can separate the work, you know, the art from the artist, from the person behind it. And I mean, I think we have to in a way, right? Also, I mean, a huge amount of amazing stuff is just going to get cancelled. But it's difficult uh, not to have your feelings about the work tainted when you hear such stories, you know. And of course, you know, there was also the tragedy of Brian Jones. I mean, again, you know, he could behave absolutely appallingly, but was this remarkable, talented, beautiful creature too? You know, Gansborg, another one, another favourite of mine, you know. It's tricky to hold these contrasts simultaneously in mind now. Anyway, but listen, what do you think? And why don't you hold us in mind? You know, leave us a review, send us a letter, join us at the Bureau of Lost Culture com to hear our news and stories your encouragement is always appreciated and thanks for spending this time with us and this story today i thought we could finish with a quote from the sheltering sky it's the one that's inscribed on the martial arts expert and actor brandon lee son of bruce lee is on his gravestone because we don't know when we'll die We get to think of life as an inexhaustible well. And yet everything happens only a certain number of times. And a very small number, really. How many more times will you remember a certain afternoon of your childhood? An afternoon that is so deeply a part of your being that you can't even conceive of your life without it. Perhaps four or five times more? Perhaps not even that. How many more times will you watch the full moon rise? Perhaps 20. And yet, it all seems limitless. See you, hear you, next time. (laughs) 